swinging free kick and a chance here for Kelly. He scored! David Kelly! Trackman a level against all the odds! Jennings. There's the kick. Scoreboards! This is Buxton, away from Backinson, this is Pringle, now Caprice, Caprice with the cross, the header, it's in, it's Conor Jennings! Tramere Overs, who's double dip, let's it out well! Okay, very lucky to be joined by um, a voice you'll be hugely familiar with if you uh, enjoy your football, as I'm sure you all do. Uh, voice of uh, BBC Match of the Day, Amazon Prime. Is there any other channels you don't do, Steve? Um, uh, Amazon, well, BBC Match of the Day is the main one, Paul. Uh, yes, I was on Amazon Prime earlier this season and um, I do quite a lot of what they call world feed commentary, which is... Uh, um, primarily for UEFA, um, who provide an English language commentary on Champions League, Europa League, international football for um, foreign countries. So I might, if you happen to be watching um, a Champions League game in South Africa or somewhere, it might well be me <laughs> commentating on it. So uh, yeah, that's 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 my three main sort of uh, things that keep me busy. Yeah, so it's Steve Wilson, everyone, um, for those who didn't guess. Um, so, yeah, so if you're listening to this, wherever you are in the world, you've probably heard Steve commentating on a game. Might well have done, yeah, yeah. Um, that is that is true because I, my voice pops up on a lot of that stuff and also on some championship football that um, goes into North America and things like that. So uh, you pop up in strange places and you don't always know where you don't. Well, you are, you often don't know where you're going out. You know, I'll get a Twitter message from someone occasionally saying, you know, watching you in Mumbai or something, you know, kind of like, oh, wow. OK, <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> uh, right. First of all, um, we're obviously recording this during the lockdown period. How are you? How are you coping with uh, with isolation, Steve? Are you well as well as? as, as yeah, you? no. Well, I, I mean, we are we are kind of isolating like everybody is, but we haven't got any illness in the house. Um, we're all here except for one of my kids. Um, it's very difficult, really, for them. I think because I've got one who should have been doing GCSEs this uh, summer, and so he's obviously kind of homeschooling, and the school is setting him a lot of work to do because. I think there's going to be some kind of assessment. Um, and um, and then one of my other kids is here. She's trying to write a dissertation in her final year at university. So um, and um, that's that's you know, that's really difficult to try and do it under these circumstances, um, particularly, I think, for the university dissertation, because normally speaking, 
you'd be calling upon the resources of libraries and what have you and um she's she's a history student and you know those resources aren't available to you so it's it's really difficult yeah so it's uh, anything but quiet in your house by the sounds of it um yeah well you know i i'm i'm kind of uh working away as well to be honest with you because um you know i am i was due to be commentating uh at euro 2020 well you know as we stand that's not going to happen but it will happen at some point probably probably next summer and you know there are 20 teams who qualified for that tournament they will all still be involved um and you know so i'm actually I, I i think paul that when football restarts you know whenever that may be this season will end and there will be very little break before next season starts and then there'll be very little break before the european championship so um you know it's hard enough anyway doing the preparation for a tournament between the end of a football season and the start of a tournament, it's it's always quite stressful and difficult to pack in the amount of work you have to do for a tournament. So I'm, I've actually been spending a lot of hours here researching, um, you know, getting in the prep for those 20 teams who've qualified. And, and uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that probably each of those 20 nations, you know, they've got a core squad of 12 or 15 players that isn't going to change. Their record in previous European Championship finals isn't going to change. How they qualified for this one isn't going to change. So there's a lot of work you can do, even even sort of 12, 15 months away from the tournament, assuming it happens in the summer of 2021. So um, I'm trying to save myself time, you know, in 12 months time, 12, 12 or 14 months time, I'll be very glad that I've done that groundwork now. And, um, you know, hopefully it'll stand me in good stead. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, come on, see where a bit of your kind of commentary and and kind of games and stuff that you've commentated on uh, five mm. Cups, five European Championships. I'm led to believe by Wikipedia. So, <laughs> we'll come on, to that. we'll Possibly, come on to that yeah. a bit. <laughs> but um, this is Tramia, the podcast. So yeah. let's talk Tramia. How did mm. you're a big big Tramia fan? How did you kind of start supporting the team? Well, I was brought up and my parents still live within walking distance of Prenton Park. And um, my dad and mum are both really big sports fans, but actually, strangely, not particularly football, um, more cricket and rugby league because they're both from Hull. So uh, kind of Yorkshire pursuits. Um but, um but I was I was living in Prenton, obviously Prenton Park down the road. And um I was, well, January, I know exactly when my first game was, January 1975. It was a home game against Grimsby. I've still got the programme somewhere, which I think cost 4p or 5p or something. Um, So that was my my very first game. It would have been a Friday night, I I guess. Um, And Ron Yates was the manager. Um, and I just remember, you know, I just I, I once went back and looked up in the old Rothmans football year, but what the actual attendance was for the game. But I mean, little six year old me, it was the biggest crowd had ever been in. And it just seemed sort of like monumentally exciting. I can kind of remember um, things that stuck in my head. Well, the, the, the sort of smell of frying onions and football food Um Sitting in the main stand, you could smell the, um, you know, the deep heat stuff that they put on in dressing rooms. You know that. Yeah. That I don't know if it still does, but if there used to be areas of the main stand where you could sit right over the dressing room, probably you could actually smell it coming up through the floor. 
Um, so there was that spell. So yeah, probably. <laughs> well, really evocative. Exactly, it hasn't changed. So really evocative kind of smell. You know, a new smell for me then. Um, most excitingly, I suppose there were people around swearing and stuff, you know, and um, and a bit of communal singing going on, which I'd never experienced before, uh, apart from in a primary school classroom. So it just seemed monumentally exciting, and it seemed like a huge crowd. I think if you go back and and actually look at the attendance for that game, it was probably about eighteen hundred or something. But you know, it sort of seemed to me it seemed to be vast and really really exciting and and i literally got the bug that night you know that was um me my dad and my elder brother who's a couple of years older than me and um you know we we went pretty much at my insistence from then on as often as we could and um you know my brother was my brother was into it as well and um but less so than me i think and dad kind of tolerated it because he'd rather be watching rugby league. But, um, but you know, he enjoyed, he enjoyed taking us obviously. And um, so we, I, I was hooked from day one, Tramia Grimsby. Luckily Tramia won three one. Otherwise I might've been a Grimsby fan. Right, <laughs> that, yeah. been, that would have been worse. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure not many people can, uh, can say that they got hooked after watching Tramia Grimsby, but there we go. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, it was the team then, you know, it's obviously a long time ago now, but Steve Koppel was in the team, you know, was kind of the the um, star, you know. And um, I remember it's years later, but also now years ago, uh, interviewing Steve Koppel and um, talking to him, not really as part of the interview, but just chatting about how he was you know, combining famously sort of doing a degree in economics at Liverpool University at the same time as playing for Tranmere. And um, and in fact, what people don't know is that he was then later, he was still at Liverpool University, or I say people don't know, some people may not know. He was still at Liverpool University when he joined Manchester United. And um, he said to me that he played for Man United in the 76 FA Cup final when they lost to Southampton on the Saturday and on the following Monday, started his final exams at Liverpool University. <laughs> I mean, that is just not going to happen now, is it? Yeah, no, different, different, different days, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So you, you've obviously coming through and seeing players like Steve Koppel, and over the years, sort of mentioned a few players who kind of captured your imagination while watching Rovers. Yeah. Well, he was he was the first, but I mean Ronnie Moore at the same time, obviously, um, who was a centre half. I I think when when I first started watching him play, and obviously became a centre forward with great success. Um, and I can remember the mid mid late seventies. There was one year when him and Dixie McNeil, the Wrexham striker, were kind of head and head head to head as the season went on to be the league's top goal scorer. And I think they both got into the forties. I've got a feeling Dixie McNeil actually pipped Ronnie by one, got about 45 or something, you know. Um, so that was kind of, that was, you know, pretty fallow years for the club, obviously, mid-70s, fourth division. Um, and then as the club, as things picked up, I remember, you know, great little wing, well, obviously Stevie Mungall, people like that, great servants of the club, Ray Mathias, um, Steve Peplow, Dickie Johnson, um, and these guys, and I was actually at school with a guy whose uncle was Eddie Lloyden, who 
I think was quite old when I started watching, but was famous because he scored the goal at Tranmere. I think he's. I think I'm right in saying he scored the goal when Tranmere won at Highbury in the League Cup against Arsenal. Correct. Yeah. Uh, well, his his nephew uh, was in my class at school, so so that was another reason, you know, um, why why there was this, uh, you know, it, it, he was a bit of a celebrity in our class. Uh, Eddie Lloyden's nephew but then later you know wingers do you remember Dougie Anderson you know um, and and obviously then you know the sort of great years under Johnny King when um, you know I really loved watching Steve Vickers play I thought he was a great terrific sort of ball playing centre half uh, for that level and you know and, and Pat Nevin was Unbelievable for John Aldridge, and and that team was in, uh, incredible, incredible. Uh, what was it, two, three, four seasons? You know, a, a, an extraordinary time for the club, and um, and I was lucky enough, really, Paul, because I I was actually all, like Steve Coppel, I was at Liverpool University studying English, but I did wrote a lot on the university newspaper. And uh, when I joined, there were three of us basically writing the sport. One of them was David Anderson, who now writes for the Daily Mirror. Um, One was Mike Hughes, who is the commentator on Radio Merseyside. And the other one was me. And they kind of taken Liverpool and Everton. When I when I got involved, they take one. One had taken Liverpool. I think Mike did Liverpool. Dave did did, uh, Everton. and, And I said, I'll do Tranmere. And uh, I used to go over to the old Valley Road training ground and um, and sit in, in Johnny King's press conferences. And, you know, he, he once gave me an interview for the paper, just me, you know, and it was like there was me, a sort of student, um, sitting in proper football manager's press conferences, um, getting to know a little a little bit about Johnny King and uh, and his brilliant turn of phrase, you know. Well, that's brilliant. Not a bad trio to be uh, to be working on the uh, the uni paper either. It's not bad, is it? I know it's not bad when you think about it. Yeah, we've all we've all made a living out of it. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we yeah. were until a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Are there any games that kind of stand out in your memory as you've sort of been watching Rovers over the years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think beating, I think Chris Malkin's winner against Bolton at Wembley in the playoff final would um, would have to be the sort of height for me as a fan, you know, that was probably around the time when I was watching them more than I've ever done in my life, I suppose. Um, when I, you know, didn't really miss too many games at all, home games anyway. Um, and, um, you know, that was, that was fantastic. Um, going to Wembley, I didn't go to the mercantile credit thing, but I did go when they lost to Bristol Rovers, um, in the you know there was one year wasn't there when they when they won the auto windscreens lost the playoff final and then the following yeah, year did the reverse you know and I think I went to yeah I think I went to three of the four um I think I went to three of the four Wembley games in those seasons um and then many years later which was be I think the last time uh, I hadn't been to football with my dad for a long long time and um he came with me to Wembley for the League Cup final against Leicester, which was, you know, I think the last time he would have watched a football game probably, but that was pretty special. Yeah. Uh, me and my dad, after all those years, watching Tranmere was uh, was pretty good. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. And sort of, uh, you're obviously very busy Saturdays. 
Tuesdays, Wednesdays, whenever Rovers are playing. Mm. How do you kind of uh, keep in touch with what's going on at, at Prenton Park? Well, uh, through you know all the usual all the usual means. I don't go to Prenton Park as often as I would like. I live really close to the south coast, and um, you know this season so far, assuming that it can start again at some point. You know, I've commentated on about a hundred games this season, so. Um, you know, I'm doing more football than Tranmere. So um, I have to hold my hands up and say the last Tranmere game I saw uh, live was I took my son and my brother-in-law and his son came along to the playoff final at Wembley. Um, I was there for the Spurs game last season. Um, Don't talk about that. Yeah. Um, and I was texting my brother now lives in, in uh, New Jersey and um, uh, I was kind of you know, WhatsApping him photos and messages and stuff during the game. And I think when it went to three, I think he sent me a message saying, dial 999, there's going to be a massacre. And, uh, <laughs> and he was um, right. Well, he was because, you know, they 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 were chasing the goal, weren't they, really? They, it, it became a case of Tramia just looking to score a goal and uh, it didn't happen. But, um, but yeah, I mean, funnily enough, I, I, I probably saw more of them. I don't know why this is. Maybe there were more away midweek games, I don't know, during the time that they were in the uh, National League. Um, I went to sit next to you at one. Yeah, I went to I went to Forest Green. I think that's where I saw you, wasn't it, Paul? Forest Green, um, which was a a tremendous game, actually. Um, I went to uh, I went to Guiseley because I happened to be in Yorkshire. Uh, I went to little story Bromley Bromley away was my birthday it was august the 6th and it was the week before the premier league started so i wasn't oh, working yes. and um so my my son kind of he's not a big football fan at all you know but he he's all right with it and um so i said my wife said what do you want to do for your birthday so i, I said honestly hand on heart what i want to do is go to watch bromley Tranmere. and um and she was like and I, okay um and I was hoping he, my son, would come. And when I said to him, I was quite surprised because he kind of went, yeah, all right, yeah, okay, sounds all right. What I didn't realise was that my missus had paid him to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> she said, I'll give you a tenner if you go. And um, <laughs> so um, so that was that was fun. So I went to a few, I went to a few away games uh, in the National League. Um, and... Um, Maidenhead was another one, uh, the ghastly night at Maidenhead. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't know why. Maybe it's just the way the schedule falls for um, for fixtures in, in the National League, but there seem to be more opportunities for me to go then than there are now. Yeah. So we're looking at the present day, and obviously you've, you've not been to many games no. in recent times, but you obviously follow, follow closely. How... Mm. How do you think uh, Rovers are doing? Well, I was pretty depressed. In the yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I say depressed. I thought, I, I thought to be honest, I felt obviously, you know, Norwood going to Ipswich was going to be a massive thing, I guess, always. And um, I, I, you know, I thought I felt this season would be about survival, and that's obviously how it's turned out. Um, I mean, the three back-to-back wins before the before the stoppage was was huge because I must admit I think before then those teams around Tranmere would have been thinking 
well, you know, we can virtually write them off with um, with Bolton and Southend, you know, and um, and I think I think those results have completely transformed that perception of that. It, it, the the break, I mean, it's a totally trivial thing to say in the scheme of things, but the break has obviously come at a really bad time because they had momentum and and um, and were really the form horse in the bottom half of the table with some huge games coming up. Um, I mean, there was what four four more games to play in March, I think. Um, and um, you know, I was beginning to quite feel, you know, not only optimistic but confident actually um, of staying up. Now, you know, I think you know it's anybody's guess how this affects uh, affects everybody when we start again. Um, but you know, I, I just. I just I look at it and I think James Vaughan is a is a decent addition. You know he's chipped in with a couple of goals. Obviously I think he got twelve for Bradford, didn't he, before he came. Yeah. Um, so you know clearly scoring goals was was a problem, and um, you know that would go some way to helping that. I think. Um, so you know it's going to be tight. It's going to be tight, isn't it? It's going to be really really tight. But fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. And and Mickey Mellon, the job that he's done, I rate that. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, look, if if Tramir go down, they're still better than we, we all were two years ago, you know? Um obviously it would be disappointing, but you know, if you'd have said if you'd have said three years ago the club would be in League Two in season twenty twenty one, you'd take it, wouldn't you? Yeah. And um and um, you know he's been absolutely brilliant. He's been fantastic, and um, you know uh, all power to him because um, and, and all power as well to Mark Palios and, and Nicola because I think they have actually done um, I think they've done a spectacularly good job since they took over. Really, I, I don't quite know how they've done it, but by really good planning, really good organisation, really good recruitment. Um, behind the scenes um i think they've done a, a, a fantastic job and i think they've done well to hold on to mickey as well i'm pretty certain that last summer there, there were clubs sniffing around for him and um you know i i think i wouldn't say we're lucky to have mickey because you know we deserve to have a good manager but um he is a good manager definitely good stuff yeah well let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your uh, your day job in the uh, the old commentary yeah, yeah. Well, how how did how did you sort of get into it at, at the beginning? Um, well, well, it was sort of partly tied up with what I was saying before about university, and um, I'd done I'd done the university newspaper at Liverpool. I'd got involved a little bit in sort of um, community radio things as well, because basically, as a sort of nineteen year old, I had two like a lot of nineteen year olds. There was only two things I was really interested in was football and music, and. Um, and I was writing about football for the university paper and I was playing, I was like a, a, a bad DJ <laughs> um, playing, playing my songs, you know. And um, I suppose at some point in the, it was in the final year at Liverpool that the penny dropped that actually, um, you know, you could broadcast that those two might meet, you know, brought not, not music and football so much as broadcasting and football. Yeah. And um so I applied for, uh, in my final year at university, I applied for a BBC postgraduate uh, news trainee scheme, news journalism trainee scheme, which I didn't get on. But um, I didn't, I did get down to the final interview. I, I did, um, 
I kind of did a week's work experience free at Radio Merseyside where I worked. Actually, I shadowed around Shari Val, who's now quite big on Radio 4. Um, And um, I spent a week basically following her around. This was all news news reporting. Um, I, I did kind of a couple of local interviews. And then finally, the sort of final interview stage was in was in London, went down. And I didn't get on the course, but I didn't really have any idea until later, probably about a year later, how close I'd or how how well I'd done, you know, um, actually, because it turned out I, I was in London. I'd got uh, when I graduated, I wanted to move to London. I thought I'm, I wanted to live at least a year in London, thinking I'd probably give it 12 months and move back. And I've never moved back, actually. Um, so that was 1990. And um, I got a job in London with a publishing company, which went bust, unfortunately. So I was out of work and um, I sent off a tape to Capital Radio, which was like the equivalent of Radio City in yeah. in London, in that it, it, it did all the football. And um, so I sent off a tape with a kind of made up match report and a CV of what I'd done. And it turned out that one of the guys at Capital, the guy I'd sent it to, was... Um, was an ex-BBC guy and he got in touch and he said come in and do a voice test and he said he said you probably he said that BBC thing you did you probably I would guess you probably got down to about the last 30 for about 10 places and I was kind of like okay and he was like there's like thousands of people who apply for that it's probably like five or six thousand applicants I was like oh right okay I had no idea um and so you know he kind of took the view that even though I hadn't got on it I'd actually done really well and um and so bit by bit, by going in and, and on a Saturday afternoon to be in the studio as the program was being put together, unpaid, just learning how to edit tape and, and, and the things, you know, how technology was back in 1990, a long time ago. It was all quarter inch tape and cart machines and stuff um, and learning how all this works. And then I was pretty fortunate. I think uh, one Saturday, somebody, I think their motorbike had broken down. Or they'd woken up ill or something. I can't quite remember. But the Capital Radio office was really close to Euston Station, where it used to be on Euston Road. They're, they're in Leicester Square now. But uh, somebody anyway, at the last minute, couldn't get to a game between Watford and Swindon. And this guy, Pete Simmons, who was the senior sports producer, said, get down the road to Euston, get on a train to Watford and go and report on Watford against Swindon, which I did. And um, I did well enough to go to another game the next week. And, you know, they probably paid me about 15 quid or something. First time I'd been paid to go to a game. And a um, few months after that, um, a fellow called Mick Lowe's, who was a brilliant radio commentator, uh, left Capital and moved. Uh, he ended up in Newcastle, actually, commentating on Newcastle. Um, and uh, he left Capital and I got his job, basically. And that would have been 1990, 91 season, I think. Um, and Capital was a brilliant place to learn, actually, because it was such a big radio station. It was an in, it, independent radio station, but it was such a big one that it was probably the only non-BBC station in the country that would send people to a World Cup. And I went to the World Cup in 1994 and I went to the Olympics in 96 and I went to Euro 96. I like, commentated on the semi-final of Euro 96, um, which was incredible, you know, because I was still really pretty young, um, pretty green. And that meant that when I wanted to get out of capital, 
and try and get into the BBC, I'd done things by the age of 25 and 26 at Capital Radio that no one of my age at the BBC had done because they were all in local radio. And local BBC radio don't go to big tournaments because it's all done by the national stations. So I had a pretty good CV, really, um, and and went to Radio 5 and then on to Match of the Day. Yeah, so how, do, how does the uh, the call go from sort of Capital to, to, to the BBC? Um, I'd, I'd been at Capital for about six or seven years and I just, I felt that I'd learned everything I was going to learn, really. And, you know, as a kid, I was sort of steeped in Peter Jones, Brian Butler, Radio 2, Football, BBC. And I just really wanted, Five Live was relatively new, can you believe? Mm. And, um, you know, I, I just really wanted to work for the BBC. And um, I applied two or three times. Uh, and, and I think with the Beeb in those days, you kind of had to pay your dues a little bit. You kind of had to fail a few interviews before they took you um and i did fail a couple of interviews but i kept applying and um and 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 they offered me a job and of course the the, the totally different you know like at capital it's a relatively small pond go to five live there's like a you know a hell of a lot of people there and i never went to a football game for 18 months you know um you have to you have to pay your dues by reading the sports news at unsociable hours early in the morning late at night you know, all that stuff and you know eventually people get to know you people get to think you're half decent and they judge you and um and eventually you might go to a football match and my first football game for five live was um celtic against i think it was motherwell um first day of the scottish season on a saturday afternoon before the english season had started and um and that was my first commentary on the bbc for for radio five craig burley scored the hat trick i think celtic uh celtic against motherwell uh, it's about 97 or 98 something like that and um so i kind of worked my way through the ranks at five live and then an opportunity came up to go the BBC, uh, John Champion left the BBC, left BBC TV to go to ITV, which meant that there was a gap on the BBC roster for the World Cup in 2002. And basically the guy who was in charge of BBC TV at the time decided that he was going to sort of test out some of the people on Five Live or everyone on Five Live and give that gig to the person who he liked the most. And, um, you know, fortunately for me, that was me. So um, the 2002 World Cup finals, uh, literally the first the first um, the first thing I did on BBC TV was my kind of tryout, which was the um, African Nations Cup in 2002. Um, I did the final of that. But my second my second game for BBC television was Brazil in a World Cup final. <laughs> and I was sitting in this stadium in South Korea just thinking, I can't believe this. You know, I, I mean, I was really nervous, as you can imagine. But um, I was thinking, wow, you know, I was um, about to do only my second ever TV live commentary. And it was Brazil in a World Cup finals on BBC One. It was incredible. Oh, you, can't, you can't write it, can you? Well, I mean, luckily I didn't blow it, I suppose. <laughs> Otherwise, there might not have been another one. But, um, you know, I've been really, really fortunate because I've been to every World Cup since then and every European Championship since 
Well, actually, Euro 96 I did for, for Capital. So um, I haven't missed a European Championship since 1992. And I haven't missed a World Cup since 1998, which, when, when I had gone to the BBC, but was too far down there pecking order to go to the finals. So, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been astonishing, really. It's been, I, I've been incredibly, incredibly fortunate. Incredibly fortunate. Okay. I'm going to ask a question which... Is of great interest to me. It might not interest the listeners as much, but I'm I'm fascinated with the the difference that you need from a radio commentary to a TV commentary. Can you give us a little bit of insight into the differences, the nuances that, yeah. that change from giving a, a radio broadcast to a TV broadcast? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I mean. For example, you know, I I will I worked recently for the first time with Stephen Warnock, who was doing co-commentary on the World Club Cup in in um uh qatar and um in in december and stephen was very keen to learn and he hadn't done much co-commentary on the telly but he'd done a lot on the radio so basically if anybody is is good enough to ask me which he was and i you know i i think it was great that you know he's one of those guys who comes in saying listen i don't know it all i want to i want to improve if you think i'm doing something wrong tell me so before we started i said look the difference is basically this. There's no point in talking about something, really, that the person at home can't see when it's on TV. So if you think about your test match special commentary and Brian Johnston, you know, genius that he was, talking about the seagulls peeling overhead and the number 32 bus going behind the pavilion end at the Oval or whatever, um, that's great on the radio. Absolute disaster on the telly because you can't see it. There's no point in talking about it. Um <laughs> And you also have to talk so much less. You know, there's no point in in explaining to people what is perfectly obvious in front of them. You're not going to say, for example, um, you know, you're not going to say uh, um, Raheem Sterling, you know, ball out to Raheem Sterling on the left. You don't need to say on the left because people can see he's on the left. You know, so there's so in radio, you need to position where the ball is, where the player is and you don't need to do any of that on TV. So you end up talking a lot less and that might sound straightforward. However, it's very difficult if you are used to doing radio to stop talking so much. It's really hard because a very small silence on the radio seems like a very long time. And actually a silence on the TV can be brilliant. And I remember years ago reading an article with brian moore uh the old itv commentator and i was at this game it was a game when england failed to qualify for the 94 world cup finals and they lost in rotterdam to holland 2-0 and ronald koeman scored this free kick that basically knocked england out of the world cup it was graham taylor was the england manager and um and he said before before the kick was taken, he'd watched this is great lesson in commentary. He'd been watching Holland train the day before, and he'd seen Ronald Koeman doing these little flicky sort of chips over the wall, bending it into the corner. And as he came up, he said, He's gonna flip it, he's gonna flip it, which he did, into the corner of the net, two nil Holland, game over. And in this article, he was describing that this this goal was the commentary he was most proud of in all his career. Fantastic career. And he said, I can't remember the exact duration, but he said, let's say 23 seconds, he said nothing. When the ball went in, he said nothing. 
the crowd goes mad. It's Rotterdam. You know, the pictures are of Dutch fans going crazy. And and he said, it took great discipline to say nothing. But what could he say? You know, the silence summed up the disappointment more than anything he could say. Yeah. If he says England are out of the World Cup, well, everybody knows that. You know, you, you, you're telling people the blindingly obvious. And and to leave a silence that long is really brave, but it was brilliant, fantastic, absolutely brilliant. And you shouldn't do that on the radio. You 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 can't. You know, a two second gap on the radio. You think the line's gone down. You know. <laughs> which which do you prefer? Um, no, you do more. I'll be, honest with you, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's probably it's not so much a question of prefer. It's just what you feel comfortable with. And when I was doing radio every week, I felt comfortable with radio. And when I started doing telly, I wasn't comfortable with it. And now I hardly do any radio commentaries. And um, you know, I'm much more comfortable on the TV. Radio is more tiring because uh, you speak so much more. But actually, I think te- I think telly is probably more difficult because what the viewer at home doesn't probably appreciate is that you are listening to quite a lot of voices in your ear while you're talking. So you've got the director who is speaking to you, speaking to the other cameramen. You can hear these conversations going on. You can speak to him. Uh, so you can say, please give me a close up of such and such because I've got something I want to say about him. He'll say to you, I'm going to give you a close up of Mickey Mellon in a minute um think of something to say so there's all kinds of stuff that you at home don't hear um you know in the business it's called talkback um that you know so you you might be hearing two or three different voices pretty much all the time during a live commentary and um and as well as your co-commentator who's sitting next to you and as well as trying to think about what you're going to say and you don't get that on the radio so much so i think actually telly is more difficult all this kind of stuff fascinates me. I apologise to any listeners who maybe don't yeah. appreciate that kind of thing, but it really, really interests me. And so, um, yeah. And do you know what? Actually, I, Clive Tilsley, Paul, Clive Tilsley got got called out recently. Um, I think it was when England played in Bulgaria because people were saying he didn't pick up quickly enough on the racist stuff from the Bulgarian supporters. And there was a lot of stuff on Twitter. It was really unfair. And it was kind of like, how come the Five Live guy heard it straight away and Clive Tilsley on ITV didn't hear it? Well, the reason is because the Five Live guy is listening to himself and crowd noise. Clive Tilsley listening to himself, crowd noise, a director, a producer. You know, he's got a lot more things going on in his headphones than a radio commentator has. And Clive got called out for it. And it was really unfair. Yeah. Yeah, fair, fair, uh, fair comment there. Um, favorite game you've commentated on? Do you think? Um, it would have to be. It was. Um, oh God, I mean, I, I got really lucky in the, my favorite tournament. It's really hard to reduce it to one game, but my favorite tournament was definitely the Brazil World Cup in 2014, when it just seemed like every game I went to was was like it wasn't every game but it seemed like almost every game was just brilliant and it started off with Spain against the Netherlands when Van Persie scored that kind of diving header do you remember I think it was like I think that was 5-3 or something um and um I just had some insane games in that tournament there was a brilliant brilliant game between Belgium and the USA uh which I did 
Um, there was also in that tournament, famously, the uh, Brazil won Germany seven semi-final, which I did, um, which is probably the most astonishing game. You know, if I ever go to a more unbelievable game of football than that, I'll be surprised. Um, seven ones in World Cup semi-finals. Well, I was really proud. Uh, you don't. And I was really proud of something that I had dug up in my prep for that tournament that I don't think anybody else had. And, and it, you know, it, it, this is where it sort of, you know. They it, say a lot about you. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but I'd, I dug up the fact that this is 2014. Um, Brazil had not lost a competitive game at home since 1975 so from 1975 to 2014 they'd not lost a single competitive home game not one and um so um you know there was a lot of things i had not prepped in that game which i wished i had prepped as the game was going on like what's their biggest what's the biggest ever defeat in a world cup semi-final what's brazil's heaviest ever defeat you know all these things that i wished i'd looked up and didn't know because you just couldn't anticipate it um, and it's really frustrating because at half time, I think it was five nil to Germany and I'm trying to get online to try and look this stuff up. But of course, you know, you can't get online, you know, it's like there's 70,000 people all trying to get on the internet. And, um, so really frustrating not to be able to find the answers to some of those questions. But I did have this line that the last time Brazil had lost a home game was in that stadium in Belo Horizonte in 1975 in a Copper America game, they'd lost at home to Peru. And it had been, what's that, 40 years, whatever it was, or however long that was, um, since, you know. So I was pretty pl- I was pretty pleased that I had that up my sleeve, even if there were other things I wished I'd had up my sleeve. So plenty of uh, plenty of tournaments that you've that you've that you've covered. Um, so I think my start of five World Cups and five Euros. That's just for BBC TV, is it? Um, well, I did I did the World Cup '94 for Capital. I missed 98, I just joined the BBC, and I've done 02, 06, 10, 14, 18 for the BBC. So I've done I've done six World Cups, and I've done 96, Euro 96 for Capital, Euro 2000 for Five Live, and then 04, 08, 12, 16 for BBC TV. So I've done six World Cups and six Euros in all. But, um, yeah, for, for Capital or Five Live or, or TV. Um, so that's been quite a ride really. And, um, I hope to do a few more. <laughs> I reckon, I, you know, I don't know. I I'd like to think that I might get somewhere near, somewhere near 10 world cups or 10 euros if I'm lucky. Yeah. Well, how many, how many did Motson do? Do you know, I'm not sure. I think he might've done 10 world cups. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. It would have been, it would have been nine or 10. Definitely. I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm not sure. Okay, so um, obviously week to week away from kind of tournaments, it's it's matches a day that you uh, that you cover. Yeah, what's it like being on a, a British institution like that? Um, well, I mean, it's it's sort of you know it, when you start, it is tremendously exciting to be um, you know as it was when I started on Five Live. You know the old sports report music, that music. You know, having listened to that so many times as a kid to actually be on that program is really amazing. And then to actually be on match of the day, having spent countless hours as a kid with that theme music um, 
and I'm old enough that Des Lynham was presenting when I started. So, you know, to have Des Lynham say, um, you know, whatever the game was, um, you know, and your commentator is Steve Wilson was um, a pretty special thing, you know. And, you know, I'm fortunate now that having been a fixture on the programme for some considerable number of years, 20 years, really, um, I'm I'm in the fortunate position where I'm kind of one of the main people on it. So um, I, I tend to get the good games, which is quite nice. So, for example, this season, I've sort of seen an awful lot of uh, Manchester City and an awful lot of Liverpool and um, not very much of um, of. Uh, West Ham and uh, Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> no offence to those clubs. So actually, no offence intended. And geographically, Brighton would be fantastic because it's down the road. But um, <laughs> but I, I've only been there once this season. But um, but there you are. So you, your first game on match of the day, do you not remember it? Yeah, it was Bradford against Manchester City. So it would have been about 1999, something like that. Um, and uh, massively intimidated, really, really, really intimidated, um, because I had no idea. Because if you know, if you're if you're part of a radio broadcast team, there might be four people or five people, maybe. Um, there'd probably be, uh, well, in the old days of Five Live, there would be two commentators, a co-commentator, a sound man, and maybe a producer. So five at the very most. And, um, you know, turn up at a TV OB, God knows how many, you know, I don't know, a couple of hundred, you know, if you include all the riggers and the, you know, the electricians and the cameramen and the sound men and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, you know, well over, well over 100 people involved in a, in a broadcast. And I found it really intimidating because I had no idea what they all did. And um, I was I was under what turned out to be a complete misapprehension that kind of all these people were depending on me doing a good job as to whether they had a good day or not. Of course, very quickly, I realized they didn't care less whether I did a good job or not because <laughs> they were too focused on what they were doing. Um, I mean, that Bradford Man City game was a highlights game. So that was, you know, your, your Saturday night match of the day highlights. My first, uh, my first live game, domestic live game for the BBC was an FA Cup replay between, um, Everton and crew at Goodison Park and um, it would have been after that World Cup I expect and um, the 2002 World Cup and um, yeah I I just remember saying something quite early on in the commentary some quite convoluted statistic we were only about two minutes into the game it was obviously a statistic I was quite proud of and was kind of determined to get it in. And sometimes when you do that, it can be a bit clunky, you know? It's kind of like, oh, he's, you know, it's like, I've, I've, I've done my homework and I'm going to show you I've done my homework. And uh, the director said in my ear, bit early for that old boy. <laughs> <laughs> As in, shut up. <laughs> um, I can't remember what the stat was, but... Um, but yeah, so that, so that was extremely intimidating at first to, to, to do all that um and um but it becomes like anything it becomes it becomes part of your week and um it becomes natural and actually um i don't know now if i was sort of thrust into a radio 5 commentary i might find it a bit intimidating that there are so few people around to help me out 
I'm not sure if you can answer this question or not. And no, no you don't need to if you if mm. you don't want to. But mm. it has been has been said from time to time, you know, whispers on you know the internet and stuff that um, the match of the day highlights commentary is uh, done after the game. Can you yeah. confirm or deny? I can absolutely deny it. Every every commentary is done from the ground. And it's done as live, you know, it's done as live. So you sit there, the game starts at three o'clock or half 12 or half five, whatever it is. Um, there has never been a, a case uh, since the BBC got the rights back. In the old days, they didn't used to commentate on every game, if you remember. It used to be yeah. like um, Barry Davis would go to one, John Motson would go to the other, and then there'd be a roundup of other games, you know. Um, but when the BBC got the rights back from ITV, in whatever that was i can't remember um every single game has been commentated upon by the person live as the game happens now that doesn't mean to say that there isn't sometimes for example i mean this this happens really rarely so i'm a bit loath to to mention it because people will go oh i told you so but you know everybody makes mistakes i cannot remember the last time i had to do this it's years and years and years ago but if you call a goal scorer wrong, if you say it's Smith and it's actually Jones, that does give you the possibility to correct that error before it goes out. You yeah. know, and that would happen. You would correct that error. But the commentator is at the game. He is not sitting in a studio in London or Salford or anywhere else. He is at the game doing the commentary. Good stuff. You they might say, you know, um, can you correct that? Because you'd want to correct it, obviously. But, um, but you know, I, I, that happens incredibly rarely, incredibly rarely. I can't remember the last time it happened to me. I'm not holding my hands up and saying never make a mistake. But, you know, I, I haven't called a goal score. You would only do it in extreme circumstances, like getting, like completely misidentifying a player being self or scoring a goal, you know. Stuff that Chris Kamara does on a weekly basis, really. Well, that's right. But I mean, I mean, he he makes it fun, doesn't he? You know, he makes it fun. I mean, if it's live, obviously you don't get the opportunity to correct it. Um, but um, but yeah, no, honestly, you know, hand on heart, that's the truth. It's done live from the ground. Okay. And um, as a as a Tranmere fan, are you ever tempted to throw in sort of random Tranmere <laughs> sort of stats into? Uh, I know spoken to Steve Bauer in the past and he mm. tries to sneak in little facts, maybe players who have had a loan spell at Tramir years and years ago, like Liam Palmer, for example. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really tempting to sort of say, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the former Tramir fullback <laughs> <laughs> when he might have had four games on loan 15 years ago, you know, um, it is tempting, and um, I, I once sort of thought it'd be quite fun to mention Tranmere in every commentary I did all season. But, um, you know, the nature of a highlights game is that there's somebody sitting in a VT editing suite deciding what goes out on Saturday night and what doesn't. And I think, it's soon, I think they'd soon catch on, if I'm <laughs> honest. <laughs> okay, good stuff. And um, you uh, wrote a book. Match of the Day book a few years ago. Match of the Day 365. I did, yes. How did, did that sort of come about? Um, quickly, more quickly than I wanted it to. Um, it was. It came out in 2015. I had the idea of doing it, and it is basically an on-this-day book. 
So it's for every day of the year. It will tell you four or five things that happened in the world of football on that day in the Premier League era, because I just thought, well, it's too hard to research back to 1888, you know. So I have to kind of, you know, limit it somehow. So it started... And anything is anything that happened after 1992 is 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 up for grabs. So um, I I pitched the idea to the BBC and they quite liked it. BBC Books, which is the publishing company, uh, is actually part of Random House, and uh, so Random House and the BBC and everything sort of ummed and ahed about it for quite a long time, and um, they eventually gave me the go ahead. So the the editor of the book. Um, or sorry, the publisher of the book rang me probably in, I think, February, late January or February of 2015. And he said, yes, green light, we, we, we're going to do it. I was like, brilliant. And uh, he said, we need the manuscript at the end of May. <laughs> I was like, so that gave me about four months. So I, I researched and wrote this book, which is 180 something thousand words in four months. And, you know, it's no exaggeration. I was, I was, and and I was also obviously doing my job at the same time. I was getting up at like five in the morning, every morning to write for two and a half hours before anybody else got up in the house. Um, You know, I, it was every spare moment I had was invested in writing the book. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of it. Um, I, you know, people who've looked at it have said, you know, it was, it was a good book, you know, they enjoyed it. Um, it's five years out of date now. I wouldn't bother going to buy it. It might be 99p on Amazon or something, but, um, but, um, you know, I'm proud that I did it. If I came up with another idea, I would absolutely not do it in that time scale. No chance. It nearly, it, it seriously affected me. I, you know, it, I mean, not kidding. It affected my sleep patterns. I found it really hard to get back into a pattern of normal sleep. I put on weight. I wasn't doing any exercise. You know, it was actually a really unhealthy experience. <laughs> but um, but there you are. And all this was your, it was, so it was your idea. You went to the to the BBC with the, yeah, with the idea. Yeah, no, it was my idea. It was, yeah, it was totally my idea. Um, my, my, my wife is a novelist and, um, and, you know, I've seen the sort of pleasure that she gets from writing. She writes fiction. And um, and I just, you know, my background was writing at university. I'd written for, did you remember 90 Minutes Football Magazine? Yeah, yeah. yeah wrote for that a little bit. And, um, you know, so I'd, I and my degree was in English. So I was used to writing. So I'm a reasonably, reasonably accomplished writer. And um, I just thought this idea and I just the more I thought about it, the more I thought I would enjoy the process of writing it and researching it. Um, Little which, did you know, which I would have done if I hadn't had to do it in about three and a half months or four <laughs> months or something. Um, but I am really proud of it. You know, I am. I am proud of that. I've done it because it it was um, it was um, you know it was really really hard. And um, actually, I won't say who it is, but a guy who I've known for years and years and years, uh, who is a is a fellow journalist, fellow football journalist. A couple of years ago, he came up to me in the press room. I think it was at Vicarage Road. And he said, uh, he said, I bought my nephew your book. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. That's that's nice of you. And he said, yeah, I read it. Um, on the entry for March the 12th, you said it was a European Championship qualifier between Scotland and um, 
and uh, Kazakhstan. Actually, it was a World Cup qualifier. <laughs> I was kind of like, <laughs> like, don't tell me that. There are about 15 billion stats in there that are right, and you tell me about the one that isn't, you know? Like, <laughs> well, I guess that's the nature of the beast, isn't it, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> Before we finish off... The book, it should be very cheap on Amazon or in garden centres. Uh, you you still got your... Uh, your, your... Commission off that? No, long since gone. No, <laughs> no, it wasn't very. Long it, uh, you, the, uh, very few people write books for money. I can tell you. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Right, I've got before we before we let you go, Steve. Yeah, I uh, asked a few supporters to uh, to see if they had any questions for you. Oh, brilliant! Okay, Twitter. So uh, I have vetted them. Okay. <laughs> um, so we'll go through a few of these if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, this has come in a few times and was one I was going to mention anyway. Um, yeah. Why do you think there's a disproportionate amount of Tranmere fans in football commentary and broadcasting? I don't know. It's really, really quite strange, isn't it? It is weird. And, um, as well. It's, I mean, obviously, kind of Ray Stubbs kind of started it um, by, uh, you know, Ray's route was obviously he was on the books as a player and Radio Merseyside and then. BBC Telly. I worked with Ray on Football Focus when I first joined the BBC. Um, Nigel Adderley, X5 Live, now Talk Sport. Um, and Steve Bauer, who you mentioned earlier. I, I don't know. We're all we're all boys. I mean, if if you if you're a we're all boy, there's a fair chance you're going to support Tramia. I have I have no idea, really. Um, it's really strange, but it's nice for us because we can all when we bump into each other and you don't tend to see other commentators that often because you're always at different games, of course, but, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it is nice. We can, we can sit and talk Tranmere together, but I have no idea. It is entirely disproportionate. I don't know why. <laughs> Someone did suggest that it was, um, any excuse to avoid going to the Tranmere games. <laughs> no 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 absolutely not and I, I, it's really it is a strange one i have i have no idea why that is it is it is a, it is a weird one all in all in sort of broadcast media as well as far as i know yeah uh, yeah strange um another question comes in john crfc your favorite Tranmere player we brushed on a few a few players but if you could narrow it down to the the one um well i would have to say ronnie moore i think i would have to say ronnie moore because i think you're probably um you know the younger you are the more um starstruck you are and obviously steve copper left Tranmere uh, at the end of that season when i started watching them so i suppose he wasn't quite around long enough for me to um for him to sort of have a totally enduring affection but um yeah, all time Ronnie Moore, definitely. Okay, next one's from Matt CRFC. Have you ever commentated on a Tramia game? Yeah, I have. Um, a couple of very memorable ones. I did the FA Cup tie against Southampton, the the comeback game. Yeah. Um, and that was for Five Live. And I also did for Five Live the Tramia Liverpool FA Cup quarter final. Okay, yeah. Um, and um, I think that is it. I did last season decline the opportunity to commentate on the Tottenham game for the BBC TV 
um, which would have been a highlights game for us. It was live on BT. Um, But um, Steve Bauer wanted to do it, and I didn't. I, I, I felt I would struggle to... I mean, I could maintain neutrality, but, you know... Um, anyone who cared to look would at my Twitter history would know that I was a Tramia fan, and I just thought perhaps I'm just better going the game as a fan, and um, and not not getting involved as trying to commentate on it. Fair enough. Fair so enough. Steve, so Steve Bauer did it, and he yeah. wanted to do it. So it's funny, isn't it? He wanted to do it, and I didn't. So we just the way you react about it, really, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, let me see if I've got any others here. Um... I'll tell you a story while you're looking about the, I just remembered it, Tramia Southampton game. Um, I did it in those days with Five Live, used to have two commentators, as you know, and I did it with David Oates. I don't know if you remember David, he passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. Um, So David and I were commentating on the game and was it 3-0 at halftime to them? I think it was, wasn't it? And um, and uh, they decided they had the facility, which is great on radio. You know, if one game's dead, they can switch and go to another one. So at <laughs> halftime, we'd done the first half and they said, we're going to switch to whatever some other game. Southampton are obviously going to win this. Um, and, um, you know, it doesn't need both of you there. You know, you might as well, one of you might as well shoot off because you're not going to get back on. And, um, and I was staying at my parents' 10 minute walk from the ground and David was driving back to London so he said to me do you mind if I go I was like of course not go and head off and um so he'd gone so so when of course the comeback began they came back to us and I was on my own and um and it was mental because I mean the game was brilliant obviously um and then like five live breakfast were kind of like you know can we get you know we need one of the player you know we need paul ride out live into breakfast and all the programs wanted interviews and literally i mean i i don't know what time i actually left the ground that night because i was setting up interviews doing interviews trying to you know get phone numbers for people for programs to bring the next day five <laughs> went absolutely mad and um and david Oatsy was uh Oti was halfway home, and I was I could have done with him because it was mental. <laughs> good stuff, right? I think uh, I think we've covered everything. Um, it's been really really good to catch up with you, uh, Steve. Paul, thank you, re- thank you very much. I've I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Nice to uh, nice to talk Tramia for an hour. Yeah, good stuff, and um, keep doing what you're doing. Love you'll love your commentaries anyway. Thank and, you. Uh, I'm sure the the rest of the Tramir supporters all uh, wish you well for uh, all the games coming up. How do you think the uh, the, the season's going to uh, conclude? Uh, what Tramir's season or the season as a whole? Well, football as a whole. I football. mean, obviously the uh, anybody's league scene has obviously sort of concluded prematurely. Mm. You I, see a I, professional game going the same way, or I, I, I desperately hope not. Um, I, I wouldn't like to predict anything. I mean, who knows? Stuff that seemed unthinkable three days ago is now happening. <laughs> so, you know, who, who knows? Who knows? I just don't know. It's really strange, really odd. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you for your time. But it will come back. It will yeah. come back. 
All the very best to you, mate. Thank, Thank you, you for your time. Cheers. Thanks for your time. Cheers, Steve. Take, Take care, care, mate. Bye, mate. Cheers. Bye.